Thank you so much for joining me today. My name is John Penn. Welcome to How Did They Get There, your one-stop podcast shop to discover how your favorite filmmakers got from A to B. Along the way, you'll hear secret tips to boost your clout, your market value, and of course, the size of your penis. For all you ladies out there, I am single, and I enjoy watching, talking about, and discussing film in all different types of settings. I also enjoy dogs and long walks on the beach. But hey, who doesn't love scintillating conversation either? Let's go on a journey together. A film journey. Let's get on with the show. There are many differences between film and television. For example, on a television set, the script is king. The script is more important than the director. The director is simply a guide that takes the script from point A to point B. Point B being the finished release of a, of a television project, uh, whether it's on a network or on a cable station. When we talk about film, film regards the director as the number one guy in charge. So if I'm Catherine Bigelow and that's Mark Bull right there trying to give me some constructive criticism on how to block a scene, I win ultimately. Maybe we argue, maybe we talk, maybe I'm the type of person that is receptive to other people's advice and, and feedback considering he was a reporter. The most interesting thing about filmmaking, or the least interesting depending on who you ask, is that it's degenerative. As a writer, when you have an idea for a script, and you write the script, and light bulbs are going off in your head telling you that the script is going to win some kind of award, or if this person is attached to play a key role, it's going to do well, or it's going to have no problem securing financing from a Harvey Weinstein or a Jerry Weintraub, one of those guys. You know, assuming that you've sold the script, you really don't have the script anymore. The director does. The producer controls the financing for the film, and the director responds based on that financing to create a finished product. That's just the way it works. Therefore, it's important for writers to assume th tough skin when their, their project comes out differently on, on film as it was on paper. Likewise, people tend to have an idealized expectation of what it means to work on a film set, especially in that role that we talked about briefly about being a director. Directors have to be locked in into this artistic vision throughout shooting. All right. Screenwriters help mold and guide that vision at the beginning, but ultimately it's the director's job to finish the, the film. Every director in the world will tell you when, when you ask them what directing is, it's answering questions. It's answering big questions like, how do you want the scene lit? And it's also answering small questions like, when this bottle is picked up by one of the actors on the scene and, and he puts it down on the desk, how should he do that? How should he do that with regard to uh, how the light is facing the, the bottle? Things like that, little, little idiosyncratic nuances that really guide the, the most important aspects of the film according to the director. And these little nuances are the difference between a good film and a great film. On any given film set, the writer possesses the most mysterious, enigmatic role. The truth about writing on most projects is that it's very piecemeal, alright? Here's what happens. You have a script. It's the first draft, alright? Now you gotta polish it. You gotta keep rewriting that thing. Second draft, third draft, fourth draft, fifth draft, sixth draft, seventh draft. At the seventh draft, or the eighth draft, when it feels like it's ready to be sold, you sell it. You try to get it options, you try to get it sold. As that happens, you really lose control over what happens to your script. It's all about the studio. Many variables can determine whether a film gets made or whether it just gets shelved. Choice is a big part of it, as in, who do you have attached to play the role of the villain, or the protagonist, or the supporting lead? If you have a verbal or... M 
even better, a written agreement from an actor saying that they will explicitly star or play a role in your film, you know, assuming that the role is a role that's in the script that you've written for the actor in question, you have a much better chance of getting the film made. So what are some of the different routes you can take in order to go from script to picture? Make it yourself. DIY. Get a budget together. Treat your film like a startup. Pitch it to investors, investors that have invested in similar types of films in the previous few years. And if they say they don't, they don't like it, ask them what they would change. Part of the thing that you need to have in this business if you want to succeed is being receptive to criticism. Too many people fail in this business. One of the reasons they fail is that they're so naive. They come into this town and they think that they're going to they're gonna rule it by storm. They don't understand that in order to make a good idea great, you have to revise. You have to pay attention to notes. It's just the way it goes. These naive folk are so under the delusion that... Their idea is pricelessly wonderful. But to the young screenwriter who dreams about getting his or her script sold to a studio and getting an option and getting it made, I ask you this. Is the reason you want to make the film for you? Is it because you want to get whatever is inside your heart and inside your brain and in your psyche out? Is that why you want to do it? Or do you want to do it because your script, you think this vision has qualities that make it different from any other film that's been released in the past and yet will still make money still can hit a broad demographic or maybe a, a shorter niche still can get funding by some sort of venture capitalist still can succeed and remain as a film that people gawk at years later still has the potential to be preserved by the national film registry at the library of congress is the actor or actress that you have attached to play a role in the film, is, are they going to get an Oscar nomination? Is it that good? And are they going to be that good in it? <laughs> Route two is sell to a studio. Submit your script. Send your script to an agency. Festivals. Dominate the festival circuit. Time for the first segment of the show. Mania over menacing impactors. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I investigate the lives of people that have made an impact on the world. And today I want to talk about a guy named Jonathan Levine. Now, Jonathan's been working for a, a while now. He's established a nice net for himself, and that includes a lot of a lot of feature jobs as a director. And he's done some really good work. I like his work. The first time I, I saw Jonathan, I saw a movie called The Wackness. Now, sometimes films are marketed in really cool and unique ways. Let me let me give you an example. In 1976, there was a film being developed, and um, a few actors had auditioned for the role, the lead role. The film that I'm talking about is Saturday Night Fever, and the year was 1977. So uh, this guy from Welcome Back, Cotter, uh, the show that was kind of into teens, very uh, uh, Saved by the Bell-esque, starred this guy named John Travolta. And Travolta goes in, and he goes in to read for the role, but they're really not sure if he's right. I mean, after all, this is a role that's very kind of gritty. And the role that he played on Welcome Back, Cotter was a cool, um, you know, Zach Morris type role. So there's a disconnect between the role that he was playing on that show, Welcome Back, Cotter, and the role that he was auditioning for in Saturday Night Fever. Ultimately, he got the role. Now, the cool thing about the way uh, which I alluded to Saturday Night Fever was marketed, it was marketed alongside the soundtrack. The soundtrack made the movie more popular and the movie made soundtrack more popular as well. The soundtrack, the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, led by the Beagies, became a best-selling soundtrack that sold millions and millions of copies. And because of the success of the soundtrack, a lot of people came back and revisited the film. When you market two things alongside each other, and they serve as complements to one another, 
It's called co-branding, and a lot of companies do this. You see this every day. When I see an ad for Pizza Hut alongside an ad for uh, Netflix or Redbox on a taxi cab, that makes me not only want to go to Pizza Hut and get a pizza, I also want to go to Netflix and get a subscription. Or I also want to go to a Redbox and rent a DVD. They're compliments. And so when the Wackness was released, it was released alongside the soundtrack. And the soundtrack amplified the movie and the way that you perceive the movie. And so when I think of the Wackness in my mind, I think of Notorious B.I.G., Faith Evans, Craig Mack, Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince, KRS-One, Nas, Tribe Called Quest, Raekwon, R. Kelly, Biz Marquee, Wu-Tang. That's what I think of when I think of that movie. And uh, that movie, when it was released at Sundance in 2008, it won the Audience Award for Best Dramatic Film, which is a big deal for any film. And, uh, you know, it made $3.1 million upon its release, which isn't that much money. But for a guy that went to Brown, that made this independent film, a gritty film, featuring all these different iconic music acts uh, from the, the 80s and the 90s, this is a big deal. Uh, it was distributed by Sony, Sony Pictures Classics, which is like their indie distribution arm. And so the movie has a cult following. And sometimes that's more important than how much money it made or what the critics said. So in spite of the fact that it may have a 69% on Rotten Tomatoes, the movie is still considered a classic in my mind and in the mind of all other sneakerheads and hip-hop guys. It's just the way it is. And it was, uh, you know, one of Josh Peck's transitions. Uh, this and Red Dawn really made him break out in film. You know, I always think of independent films as a sample size for the population of actors, right? What I mean by that is, in this independent film, all right, this film that made $3.1 million by this guy that just graduated from Brown. Guys like Aaron Yu were in it, and Aaron Yu I talked about briefly in that Disturbia Shia LaBeouf episode. That makes sense, because in any film, including an independent film, if you want it to do well, you should have someone attached to play a role. So if you have Josh Peck attached, and he's coming back, uh, you know, he's coming off of his most major role up to that point was in Drake and Josh, which was a Nickelodeon show and he's playing the lead, well now you've just increased your odds of selling a movie to Sony Pictures, for example, essentially in exchange for star power. But as he's putting this thing together, Jonathan, he's getting guys like Ben Kingsley, which is a giant get, because he's an Oscar winner. He's a giant actor. He's, he's like Ian McKellen or Patrick Stewart. I mean, you don't get bigger than Ben Kingsley. He's, he's huge. And Mary-Kate Olsen plays this really horny girl. And opposite that whole crew of Ben Kingsley and, and Mary-Kate and and people like Jane Adams, we have guys like Method Man from Wu-Tang. So now this is an ensemble cast. And let's add on Thomka Jansen, who's been working forever, and she's been in X-Men and all these different films that have been big. And uh, Olivia Thirlby, who really broke in this movie and Juno, and now she's a household name. So one independent film has brought all these different people together from all different character acting, star power, movie star lineages, and they've converged to make this piece of art. That's filmmaking. That's independent filmmaking. When John Cassavetes and John Ford were active, this is the vision that they wanted to augment. They wanted these films to do as well as they could in theaters, and they did fine. But let's go back to a point before Jonathan Livian broke out. He, uh, he was nominated for a Best Independent Mini Feature Award at the Black Reel Awards, which honor black people for films. And Jonathan Levine... I don't know if he's Jewish, but he's definitely a white guy from Brooklyn. Kind of weird. Dichotomy there. And it was for his thesis film, Shards, which he released in 2004. 
And that also won other awards, uh, including awards at the Brooklyn Film Festival, for, for example, for cinematography. Makes a documentary short the following year, in 2005, called Love Bites. And uh, it's essentially about a guy setting out on a cross-country road trip to find love using an Audi A3 and a laptop. And the next year, he made this movie called All the Boys Love Mandy Lane, and that starred Amber Heard who became a household name after appearing in movies like Pineapple Express and Never Back Down. And that was screened at various festivals like the Toronto International Film Festival and South by Southwest, so it became a big festival circuit film. And then in 2011 came 50-50. Now that was his giant studio success. Um, Seth Rogen was in it. It was based on his friend Will Reiser, who uh, was diagnosed with cancer, back cancer, a really rare form of of cancer, and uh, he was riding with Seth on the Ali G show, which was, of course, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen's claim to fame as well. And Jonathan worked with uh, Mandate Pictures, Point Grey Pictures, like all these different production companies to make the film. And Summit Entertainment, which actually distributed Twilight, was the key player in this uh, distribution scheme. And it was uh, very highly regarded upon release. Anna Kendrick's performance was praised, Bryce Dallas Howard was in it. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt was in it after uh, he replaced James McAvoy due to personal reasons. And uh, Rogan was in it, and it was a big deal for, for all those guys. And here's what's cool about it. It was made for $8 million, and it made $41 million. So when you make that much money, what is that, like $33 million? You prove to be a box office-worthy candidate as a director. And that's really important when the studio is making decisions about who to you know, direct the next film that they're making, that they have in development. You know, which of these directors from this list of directors that we think would be right to direct our next project are going to minimize chances of losing money box office-wise? So after that movie, 50-50, he directed a movie, Levine, called Warm Bodies. And Warm Bodies was a big deal in 2013. It was this paranormal romantic zombie comedy based on a novel. And Levine teamed up again with Mandeville Films, Right? See how important relationships are in Hollywood? And guess who distributed the film? Lionsgate and Summit Entertainment, who distributed 50-50. Beautiful. Now, straight out of the gate, as a producer, you're really excited when you receive a script for a, a movie like uh, Warm Bodies because it's based on a best-selling book. Want to find a way to minimize your losses in the film business? Adapt. Find a copy of a book that sold a bunch of copies. Try to buy the rights. Write a script and sell it to a studio. Odds are, if it's the right time, if all that stuff is in play, it'll get made. When I say all that other stuff, I'm talking about you. You as the writer. Are you contributing something that's unique? Are you able to write in the author's voice in a direct derivative of that, that book? How true are you to the book? How true is the script to the, the book? Is there an app director you have in mind in the Summit family that'll make narrowing down the, the selection to who's actually gonna end up directing the film a lot easier for the studio? And in that movie, we saw guys like Nicholas Holt, who broke in Skins, which was this British teen show, and uh, Teresa Palmer, and this was essentially one of her breakout roles, I mean, as a lead. But guys that I like, like Rob Corddry, he was in it. I gotta do a Rob Corddry episode. That's a good idea, man. And uh, Dave Franco, who's James Franco's brother, was also in it, and he, uh, he destroyed that role. He also promoted the shit out of it on Conan, and that really made a viral, gave the film a viral edge. And then some of those Conan videos have gotten six, seven million views. It's, it's pretty interesting stuff. Now, in these teen type of films, it's nice to have an anchor. The anchor should be a star, someone that adds a level of support, uh, attention to detail on the film. And in this case, that guy was John Malkovich. 
in other films that kind of scrape on that teen demographic, like The Fault in Our Stars, it's Laura Dern. And that movie made a profit of roughly $80 million. So someone's happy again. He's done it again. This guy is, is dynamite. And uh, a couple years go by, he directs this movie called The Night Before, which was a, a Christmassy movie that touched on drug themes. Uh, Seth and Evan wrote it. Joseph Gordon-Levitt was in it. Uh, Anthony Mackie, Lizzie Kaplan, Mindy Kaling. All these different people were in it. Columbia Pictures distributed this film and uh, made about $25 million, which is a pretty nice, reasonable profit for um, for a Christmassy R-rated comedy uh, that touches on drug themes. Now, when the film was released, it was released on the same weekend as a Hunger Games film. Uh, it was Mockingjay Part 2, and um, the studio felt kind of disappointed uh, upon first impact with regard to the release of the movie. They were projecting 12 to $13 million, and it ended up making $10 million that weekend. It's a little below expectations. But look, the next week, uh, the gross only dropped 15%, which usually grosses drop 45 or 50%, depending on the film and the franchise and how strong the fan base is. And so a drop of 15% resulted in about $8.4 million that weekend. So it did fine. And uh, like I said at the beginning of this thing, Jonathan is still working. He's going to do this thing for Showtime, uh, an adaptation of a book, big surprise, called I'm Dying Up Here. Uh, and Jim Carrey's exec producing it. I got to do a Jim Carrey episode too. And um, it's essentially about the LA stand-up comic scene in uh, in Los Angeles during the 80s, which was like the big comedy boom. So for a guy that started off as Paul Schrader's assistant, who um, is the mastermind behind Taxi Driver, he wrote that movie. His career is doing pretty well, and it has done well. And he should be proud with the, the pace that it's at right now. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is that Jonathan Levine got there. Thank you.